Money FM 89.3. Best of the evening runway. The Washington Report. Money FM 89.3. Good afternoon. It is the evening runway. I'm Elliot Danker. Let's take a look at headlines out of the United States. Reports emerged yesterday claiming that Hamas fighters from Palestine's Gaza, as well as Benjamin Netanyahu from Israel and the United States, have been able to successfully broker a ceasefire deal. Is there a tentative hostage deal as well? We'll find out about that. Plus, away from the conflict, what happens when the two most powerful global leaders hold face-to-face talks for the first time in a year. Last week, uh, the world tuned in to find out as U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping met outside of San Francisco for the APEC Forum. Now, Biden praised the sessions, calling them some of the most constructive and productive discussions since he had had taken office in 2021. Let's find out more about that on the line with me as uh, Pushan Dud, Professor of Economics at NCIAD. Professor, good afternoon. How are you? Very good, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to help us out. I suppose the top story being uh, the White House saying Israel and Hamas not quite reached a deal on the temporary ceasefire. The U.S. is uh, continuing to work to get a deal between the two sides. Exactly what is going on here? So we don't have complete clarity yet, uh, but I was looking at the op-ed that President Biden just uh, published a few days ago. And in that op-ed, he clearly said that a ceasefire is not peace as long as Hamas clings to its ideology of destroying Israel. He made the point that it simply gives Hamas more time to regroup. So he he was explicit that something is needed to break the cycle of violence. And he did advocate the two-state solution again. But the details, of course, were missing. Now, his comments have shown that there is a underscored the fact that there's a persistent divide between the U.S. and even its allies, whether in the Arab world, in the global south, with European countries, many of whom are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. So I think the best we can hope for in the near term are these humanitarian pauses. Mm -hmm. So U.S. and Qatar negotiate over the release of Israeli hostages in return for Palestinian women and children held in Israeli prisons. Uh, Meantime, I think this conflict will continue. Israel will not forget the trauma of the October 7th attacks and uh, Palestinians still have the Nakba, the displacement, still very is still very salient for them and they fear that a second displacement, a second Nakba lies in their future. How much, how much, president, how much pressure is uh, President Biden on to, to rein in Israel's uh, military campaign against Hamas? So, you know, if you look at the images which are coming out, you know, the first, the images about uh, Hamas's rampage were horrific. Yeah. And now the images coming out of Gaza are heartbreaking, right? So yeah. so both within the president's administration and outside uh, from some of its core allies, there is a pressure that something has to change. And the gist of the view is the same, that there should be a ceasefire, free hostages, allow human- humanitarian aid into Gaza, and think about what's going to happen the day after. In fact, the administration themselves, Antony Blinken is pushing the Israeli leadership to set out the principles of Palestinian statehood for the day after, as as they call it. Uh, But at the same time, the basic position of the U.S. administration has not changed. So there is no push for putting conditions on U.S. assistance to Israel, for instance, making it conditional on that there should be no more new settlements Mm -hmm. in Palestine. So, yes, the statements have become more nuanced. Biden did say too many Palestinians have been killed recently, but there hasn't been a big substantive shift. 
All right. Last week, uh, the big thing was uh, President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping meeting outside of uh, the APEC forum. Uh, Biden and Mr. Xi spoke for quite a number of hours on the sideline of the summit. Professor, what were some of your biggest takeaways from the forum, perhaps uh, biggest winners and losers in that sense? So I think the biggest win has been that there is now a diplomatic thaw in progress. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, keeping the channels of communication open and make sure that making sure that both sides are not using belligerent and intemperate language, that's a big win. Okay. Now, President Xi says that the planet is big enough for both the U.S. and China to coexist. And the U.S. is shifting away from the zero-sum lens to a much more realistic outlook, which is like they compete on some dimensions, but they're also interdependent and need to cooperate on other dimensions. Mm. So the two big wins, I think, which have come is op- opening the channels of communication between the military. This is exactly what happened during the Cold War when the U.S. and the Soviet Union used to keep lines of communication open. The second thing is where which they agreed to is to crack down on the flow of drugs from certain groups in China to Mexican cartels. But the two big issues still remain unresolved, which is Taiwan and the trade and technology war, which was launched by the Trump administration. So safe to say this is a bit of an improvement in the relationship. And I think we've seen economically in businesses, a lot of uh, thought leaders have come out to say, hey, you know, we need both parties to get on the same side. I do wonder, Professor, your thoughts on how this will be taken domestically. And I ask this because it, it is in the lead up to next year's presidential elections. So domestically, usually the U.S. uh, voting public does not pay too much attention to foreign affairs. So whether it is what's happening in Gaza, what's happening in Ukraine, or what's happening in China. Uh, Mm. So what they do pay attention to is inflation, immigration, and the and you know the trade packs. So one of the things which the Biden administration has been exploring is a trade pack between you know ten or eleven countries. But there, I think it's going to be harder for them to push it through because. First, the base of the Democratic Party is not in favor of free trade, and the Republicans have shifted completely. They've gotten aligned with Trump, which is all about looking inward and, you know, initiating trade wars. So the Make America Great Again, this thing is is sort of like an old idea, which is about the Americans should stop intervening uh, elsewhere and sort of turn much more inward. Okay, so, and and on the back of that, the former President Donald Trump said he would kill off that uh, Pacific Trade Pact being advanced by President Biden if he were to win the 2024 election and return to the White House. So they're hoping to finish this IPEF trade initiative in time. How should we assess this? What are the odds that this will push through before that election happens? So the, this this IPF initiative has like four big pillars to it. One is about trade, where I'm very skeptical that there will be lots of movements, exactly because of there is no domestic support. The second one is supply chains, where I think the push will mostly come from the private sector. So I think part of the private sector has become very nervous, and they're uh, using a China plus one strategy, which is to have one supply chain in China and one outside of China. And the the one outside of China might actually get accelerated by this IPF because China is not part of this initiative. What they did make substantive progress on was on clean energy and the fair economy, which is about reducing corruption. I think so that, that's a good thing. That is likely, we're likely going to see progress on this. Uh, but keep in mind that even on trade, you know, while the Singaporean Prime Minister was a lot more optimistic yesterday about that this provides a venue for exporting, the U.S. is becoming increasingly pessimistic about trade. So it's, it's, 
if all these Asian economies are going to export to the U.S., the U.S. should be open to imports, but I don't see the U.S. actually going for these giant multi-country regional trade talks into the future. Okay. Professor, let's talk about the other big news. Billionaire and AI evangelist Sam Altman ejected from his role, uh, his CEO role that is, at OpenAI. Uh, he was as bullish as ever about AI and the chat GPT makers' latest advances when he spoke at the Apex Summit a day later. Altman was out of that. What a difference a day makes. What are what are some of the theories as to why Sam Altman was ejected from his role? So this is mainly speculation at this point. Yeah. There is not much information flow. Like even Microsoft, which is one of the biggest investors in OpenAI, found out about Sam Altman's ouster exactly one minute before the press release. So as far as I can tell, there is a deep philosophical difference at work, okay? So there is one faction uh, at OpenAI, which is all about that we want to build safe artificial general intelligence which will benefit humanity. And then there is another group, which is that it should be about money becoming profit-oriented, expanding. So the venture capitalists, the investors are, of course, in the second camp, but the first camp is the one which actually pushed Sam Altman out because he was building AI too fast, not having enough safety protocols, and they were scared. They think it should be slowed down because they really believe that there are potential catastrophic risks. So this is the AI can kill us all. Now, what Sam Altman did was uh, he announced the GPT store, which is like the Apple app store, which essentially means that, you know, there would be fewer checks and balances because people would actually build apps on top of uh, the the basic GPT. And then he also went and sought funding from uh, the rest of the world, like from SoftBank in Japan, from Middle East investors. And this, of course, led to an explosion in tension and they pushed him out. So is it a is it a free fall now? I mean, when you consider that OpenAI was the absolute leader, you've just talked about camps that are against it. What do you think happens from here? And, and I know it is a point of speculation as well. Yeah, so I think paradoxically, <laughs> this might be a good thing. Right? Okay. So if you look at uh, how the U.S. venture capital sector, the tech sector works, it's essentially a story of spin-offs, uh, which right, is right. that people get uh, upset about their current job or unexcited about it, and they leave and they start their own company. In fact, uh, OpenAI's main competitors are actually started by other OpenAI uh, members. So we see uh, lots of funding going into generative AI. So okay. I think Sam Altman will probably start a new company, and then they will all start competing fiercely, and then again, the best ideas and firms will survive. So this might actually be good for the industry in terms of breakthroughs and applications. All right, it'll be interesting to see how things pan out. The, the theories and speculation continues. I've been speaking with Pushandit, who is Professor of Economics at INSEAD. Professor, as always, appreciate your time. Take care and have a great Monday evening. Thank you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.